when I was in elementary school, middle school, and high school, so basically kindergarten to 12th grade, I went by Jacob. That was just so much easier. No one would have a problem pronouncing Jacob. And then when I went to college, I started going by Jacobo because I was starting to embrace my identity more and embrace my actual name more. Welcome to Latinx in Power, a podcast that will share stories of amazing Latinx leaders, hosted by Thaisa Fernandez, a proud Latina in tech, program, and product manager living in Silicon Valley and sharing her experiences. Welcome to Latinx in Power. It's an immense pleasure to have my friend Jacobo Pereira Pacheco today. We work together at Rep. I remember when he first started working there. I was so excited when I learned Jacobo is also a Latinx. At the time, I was the only Latina in the San Francisco office. Hi! Jacobo is a Latinx empower because he has a Bachelor of Science in Statistics and he also has another one in Environmental Studies. He's the first generation of Guatemalan and Salvadorian immigrants. He lives in Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, and Denmark. And now he's based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Jacobo is a statistician by training and works as a data scientist at REP. Jacobo is now preparing to leave the Bay Area as he enters the world of academia again and begins his PhD studies in statistics and scientific computing at UC Santa Cruz. In this episode, we will talk more about the world of data science and what a data practitioner does, the similarities of statistics and environmental studies, leaving corporate America and returning to academia again, and also we will talk about the queer Latinx community. This is one of my favorite questions, so I need to ask you that. What does it mean to be a Latinx for you? To be a Latinx for me is to have a sense of community behind my back, I think. Have essentially an army of people behind me that are there for me. Because being growing up Latinx in America, I realized that a lot of what I have and what I've grown to have is a true privilege. I have gotten that from sacrifices that were made before me by my parents, especially my grandparents as well and having a lot of opportunities that I have that they didn't have and were striving to get, but weren't allowed to get because of the country they were born in and the circumstances they were born into. So I think it's a very community-oriented definition for me. And of course, culture, you know, like food, music, obviously like the Spanish language as well. So yeah, I think that is what it would mean for me. Talking about language, I think we had a similar process of changing our names to make it easier for people to pronounce it, and then we reverted back. I love to hear more about your thoughts and process. I went through like a whole awakening phase in my life. So obviously I was born with Hakobo. I was named after my great uncle on my dad's side, and I think It's kind of strange, like growing up in America as Latino, to be frank, you kind of sometimes hate your culture growing up because you're taught to not value it and you're taught that it is less than the rest of America, especially the rest of like white America. 
So I didn't like my name growing up. So when I was in elementary school, middle school, and high school, so basically kindergarten to 12th grade, I went by Jacob. That was just so much easier. No one would have a problem pronouncing Jacob. And then when I went to college, I started going by Jacobo because I was starting to embrace my identity more and embrace my actual name more. And I was still going by Jacobo when I initially moved to the Bay Area. So when I first started working at RAP, I was introducing myself as Jacobo for a bit. And then I had a realization that I like Jacobo and that is my name. And so I started introducing myself as Jacobo and it's just a slow progression of confidence in myself and confidence in, in my ethnicity and being proud that I am Latinx. So I think that was where the shift was occurring inside wise. It is interesting to learn more about your process and also to see how similar it was from mine. In my case, I lived most of my life in a place where people could say my name. So I never had problems with that. And suddenly when I moved to the US, people couldn't say my name anymore, not even close to what it is. So this was something new to me. Yeah, like it's, I think it's a very powerful thing to really, really just own your name, you know, regardless if it's hard to say for other people because of the language barrier. Like I'm not saying that white people or American people need to say Jacobo perfectly. Like I know they can't because it's a Spanish name, but I'm also not going to say my name is Jacob just to make them pronounce it fluently, you know? And I had, there's also that realization, which I can see you had because yeah, coming to America from Brazil, I would, people would have a hard time pronouncing Thaisa. I don't know if you know about this story, Jacobo, but my dog, his name is Moleki and people sometimes they can't say his name and I realized that when someone calls him in a different way he doesn't even look so he doesn't reply because maybe in his mind they are not calling him so it's interesting how he also had this process but a different attitude yeah yeah as it should be and I love that and talking about your job What does a statistician do? So a statistician, which is what I am formally trained in, is just someone who's honestly responsible for interpreting data correctly and logically. This could mean like a variety of things, but it's basically like not making assumptions that aren't there, not necessarily working to a certain goal, but letting the, goal, letting the data reveal what is present. So statistics is a science. I think there's this common theme where like people say that statistics is a science and an art because it is scientific and mathematical where you have to understand mathematical proofs and equations and the different like mathematical formulas that are going into like find out this hypothesis testing results or a z-score or a p-value but there's also the art of learning from the data and the art of we have to think logically as humans what makes sense we have the statistics theoretically to help us make mathematical decisions but then The art comes in when it comes into the, when we have to think as humans, as in, does this make sense? Does this hypothesis make sense? And that's where statistics lies a lot, and especially statistician work lies a lot, because it grew into fruition when people had hypothesis, 
does this water contaminate this plant or something like that? And you have two hypotheses. You have a no hypothesis, an alternative hypothesis, and you want to collect data and eventually test if it is true. And statistics is interesting because it's not necessarily the measure of certainty, because that's mathematics, but it's the measure of uncertainty. There's always uncertainty when you're working with data, and especially as a statistician, but it's quantifying that uncertainty that makes statisticians so valuable, especially when it comes to decision-making in companies, what they want to do with like their fiscal budget or what their clients want to do. Yeah, I think that pretty much settles the statistician kind of. My role is a bit different at RAP. I'm a data scientist. Within that scope, I work, I'm pretty much at the whims of what my clients want. That could be, I do, what I've done a lot at RAP is a lot of app building. So I build apps for clients. It's a way so that they can work with data and large money, like large values of money, and then just get results without needing to understand the statistics behind it because it's all hidden behind an app. That's a bit of what I do at RAP. And then other things are like exploratory data analysis, which is basically like exploring. It could be a, like a few variety of different things, but it could be like exploring different data sets and seeing like what are valuable variables that can help us discover what it is that people are really getting targeted by. Because again, RAP is an advertising company. So that is something that we're interested in. I think that's like a, a good scope of like what I've done as a data scientist at RAP. I'm so excited that we are talking about that. And I want to ask another question about your work. So what does it mean to be a data practitioner? I think being a statistician means that by effect, you have to be a data practitioner because Although you can be like statistics, there's the theory, there's the theory and the application side, and they're both they're both different sides of the same coin. So theoretically, you have a lot of mathematical proofs and whatnot, and then on the application side, you have to work with data. And being a data practitioner basically means that you understand the data lifecycle from collecting it, collecting data, storing the data, exploring the data, and analyzing the data. All of this has to be done correctly so that whatever the results come from this process, when it gets to the end result, which is decision making, it is actually influential and well-informed. I can talk more about this, but I think some of that gets a bit twisted when you're when you work in like corporate America compared to when you work in academia. People value statistics very differently in companies compared to in universities. And it's a very interesting divide, I would say. That is so interesting. I would love to hear more about those differences. Yeah, of course. So I think there's a common theme in academia where people very much value the theory before they start applying the statistics. So, which is good, which is to be frank, how it should be done, because that's what has gotten us to the application of statistics. So basically making sure that your data is corrected, is curated and collected correctly, making sure that you meet like sample size requirements, making sure that you get the right distribution of the data or you fit the distribution of the data correctly. Then it gets into like, what type of techniques are you using to explore the data? And eventually like what assumptions fit So, okay, this is the most important part where a lot of where corporate 
worlds. Like corporate worlds don't really favor, but and academics do favor, which is the assumptions. So when you fit models, like statistical models and everything, pretty much all models have certain assumptions. For example, not to get like very theoretical, but like a linear regression model, a common assumption is constant variance in the residuals or uh, making sure that the data between the variables are linearly distributed. So the fact that you can fit a line through the data and whatnot. And this applies to a bunch of different models. So basically, there's assumptions for different models. And in the academic side of things, people hold these assumptions like it is the most important thing that you have to get right before you apply a model, which mm -hmm. in theory is true. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that is that the theory behind things is not necessarily always applicable to the real life data that you're working with, uh, with in, in companies in like the corporate world. So when you're working as a statistician out and about in like companies, what happens is that I think those assumptions get relaxed and people just start fitting different types of models that don't necessarily make sense. Like, there has to be like divide between the two, like a, a bridging the gap. Like, yes, you're not going to maybe fit all the assumptions when you're working with real life data, but you can try your best. And I think a lot of corporate America doesn't do the best at that because what happens is that people care less about the theory, to be frank, and they just kind of care about the end results. And what happens is that you get results that make you and your employer and your client happy but are they real and are they statistically sound and are they quantified correctly? I think that's why it's really important to have people who are trained in statistics, but also value the theory side of it. Because as you've seen, like data scientists is one role that a statistician can fill. And that's, that has had like this huge uptake in the last decade in terms of like interest and value. But what happens is that people don't know how to apply the statistics correctly and then employers don't necessarily care and clients don't really care because people only care about results and that's fine and all but it's a problem when the results are not correct either so yeah i think that's a divide between how academia and corporate america but also like the corporate world views like the value of statistics and how to apply it Thank you for bringing those points. I think it's so important to understand and talk more about that. And when does statistics meet environmental studies? How do you apply the knowledge from those two areas in your life and work? In college, I was initially an environmental studies major for many years until my final year where mm -hmm. I, I started studying statistics. So I didn't really realize where statistics met environmental studies until I got deeper into my courses in environmental studies with regards to papers, like reading academic papers, starting to do research, starting to do presentations. And I was realizing that what was vital to any type of project was making sure that the data made sense and that it was analyzed correctly and that your results are mathematically and statistically sound. And that is where I was in starting to see that, yes, I'm studying environmental studies, but I also have to be really good at just statistics mm -hmm. and working with data because that's how 
people get their results out into the world. And statistics meeting environmental studies kind of supersedes, like even just environmental studies, like statistics is in everything. Like when you're studying humanities, when you're doing clinical trials, when you're doing engineering, when you're doing physics, like all of this research, what you're doing is you're producing data that you're then going to ingest, analyze, curate, and then spit out some results that support your initial hypotheses, you know? Mm -hmm. So that gets kind of off topic, but so that's how I started to blend the two. And in terms of like when statistics meet environmental studies or like when these um, two areas work or like, I guess, blend together in my life, I am actually recently, so I haven't done work yet, but I'm interestingly starting a collaboration with Nick Shapiro from the UCLA Institute of Society and Genetics. And one project that he's really interested in working on is called Carceral Ecologies, which is basically the study of the American prison system and how having a lot of humans incarcerated, especially at America's rate in prisons, jails, and detention centers across the country is producing mass environmental health hazards. One example of that case in point is COVID, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, COVID Mm -hmm. in prison centers, ICE detention centers, whatever center that America is doing unjustly, (laughs) then COVID is, is running rampant because these people are, aren't treated to the same caliber as the, as to the American standard. And COVID is just one example. There is, you get into nutrition, you get into the waste system you get into what type of water these inmates are drinking. And this is because of the prison system and how it was built and how many people are in these boxes. So that's an interesting um, project that I'm going to start helping out with. And uh, my role in in the lab will be as a statistician to work with the data and see what makes sense and what doesn't make sense and what hypotheses we can come up with that can possibly give us some insight into what are the ramifications of having a lot of people in a really small space and what type of environmental hazards come out of it. This is so interesting and definitely a really important work. So I can't wait to hear more about what you're working and your discoveries. So which advice would you give to someone who wants to pursue a career as a data practitioner? I think... Really importantly is, I mean, I can talk about this forever, but I love theory. I am a big proponent that, yes, the application of data techniques and statistics and everything is very important. You can do cool stuff and it's very valuable, but it is very dependent on your theoretical knowledge of things. So I would say learn more math, Mm -hmm. learn more statistics, and of course, learn more coding because that is how you're able to really get tangible results from your work. And then, honestly, work on projects you find interesting. You know, this person should find interesting. Because when you work on projects that you find interesting, what happens is that you refine your skills better. There's a clear divide when people work on on projects that they're passionate about versus projects they're not passionate about. And when you work on projects that you're passionate about, the result is better because you genuinely care and you want to do good work. So like math, statistics, coding, and work on stuff that you are interested in, that is stuff people should focus on first. And 
like to get nitty gritty, good courses for math, linear algebra, important. If you want to like both lower division, upper division, if you want to get like more nitty gritty with it, real analysis is also important. Like just working with matrices is very important for like statistical work, especially if you like do more complex stuff. I think that those would be little, little advices to someone who wants to work with data. Great tips. So you mentioned coding. What type of language do you recommend? Is it Python? There's any other language? Yeah. So I think there's an interesting shift right now where academically the most popular language is R, but corporately and working like in company settings, the most popular language is Python. Mm -hmm. And both of them have different good uses. Python is more of a stronger pipeline when you're working in tech companies and you want to get things in production. But R is very capable of doing the same thing. I've done it at work. And R is also good for data visualization. But maybe the, the team you're working with wants you to work with Python too. So I would say, and Python has some really good data visualization um, features too as well. So I would say like Python is good. I would say R is good. And then also there's a new language, not a new language, but it's starting to pick up speed called Julia, which I actually kind of want to learn, which is not popular, but it seems to be very computationally efficient. Yeah, I guess an, a suggestion for like people who want to work with data is just don't pigeon your whole and pigeonhole yourself into one language. Mm -hmm. There are benefits and cons to different languages. And if anything, you become more skilled and more desirable if you know multiple languages. Um, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect at using them either. I'm not perfect at R. I'm not perfect at Python, but I try and I am always willing to learn and good resources for them. Udemy is a good website that offers like classes. I took a Python class on Udemy. YouTube is surprisingly very good <laughs> at everything from like learning math, learning statistics, learning coding. People, there's a plethora of resources on YouTube with people just showing like coding examples and stuff. There's Khanacademy too, mm -hmm. I think, which mm -hmm. I I know they do math and stats and stuff. I don't know if they do coding stuff, but I'm, I used it when I was in high school and I'm, I can't imagine them not doing coding stuff because it's 2020 now. So the world is rapidly changing and it benefits everyone to like learn a bit of coding, I think. I really like your recommendations. And how was your experience living and studying in Denmark? Thaisa, it was fabulous. I went to Denmark at a very interesting moment in my life where I did not know where my life was heading. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I wasn't necessarily happy with what I was studying at the time. This was before I studied statistics. I was only studying environmental studies. So in Denmark, I studied sustainability, paleoclimates, basically how climates have changed in the world up until now. And then also I studied like their forestry services. So like the different types of government bodies that are involved to make sure that the forests in Denmark are properly maintained and the environmental benefits of that. So like academically, I did get a lot out of it, but I think I got the most out of Denmark personally. It was my first time on a plane. <laughs> it was my first time living in another country. Wow. I didn't know anyone. I was 20 at this time. It was definitely different to be surrounded by like, in Copenhagen, by like nothing but like Caucasian people, because 
LA, there's a lot of diversity. And even in Santa Barbara, there was like some diversity. And Copenhagen is very, and Denmark as a country is very homogenous. They don't really have a lot of different ethnicities involved or that live there. So it was definitely like a culture shock, but I think personally, I got so much out of it. I gained so much confidence. I realized the type of relationships I wanted with my friends, with my family. And I just became, I can't describe it any other way besides becoming more powerful, you know? Like confidence is a truly powerful thing that I would hope everyone gets the chance and the opportunity to see their transition in life when they become more confident. And that was definitely one of the times when I realized how, like, yes, I should be proud of my accomplishments, you know, and stop comparing myself to other people. And I'm cool. So, yeah, <laughs> I think those were my what I got out of living there. A hundred percent. You are super cool. I think everyone who looks at you, they know this right away. And it's interesting, although you weren't in a place with diversity, you felt included and you found your people. Yeah. And also, like, I met really cool people. I met Danish people. I met Faroese people that just opened up their home to me. Mm -hmm. And then I met, also met other American people that were studying there at the time that also, like, opened up their, like, life to me. And I just met a lot of lovely people there that changed me for the better. So you can't ask for anything better, I think, in life besides meeting people that really uplift your life mm -hmm. and make you feel make you realize like how beautiful life can be. What do you like the most about your job? Like working as a data scientist at RAP, I think what I've liked the most is being able to take something complex or initially daunting or confusing and turn it into something that's digestible for someone else that doesn't have the same background that I do. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I realized is not necessarily even specific to that job. It's something that I'm going to be doing for the rest of my career because I am trained in a specific skill set so that I can take something that stakeholders, clients, my boss or whatever doesn't understand and then make it understandable for them and explain it the best I can in layman terms as to not confuse them. And at the end result, this is to support decision-making and to make like more conscious, more better conscious, flexible decisions. I like the fact that I'm able to turn something, do some cool stuff to it, mm -hmm. and then make it digestible to someone who doesn't necessarily understand mathematical optimization or something, you know? So I think making digestible products is what I really, I think, love about what my team does. That's where we bring like a host of our value in, which is cool. Another question that I have been thinking about it, which advice would you give to your younger self? I would say, honestly, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Please don't be afraid to be wrong mm -hmm. because being wrong is not a bad thing. And being right is also not always the best thing either, you know? It's just fine to voice your opinion and to ask a question. And then also to follow your gut. The number of times in my life where I get maybe anxious because I don't know the future and I want to know the future. And, you know, we don't have that. We don't have that ability as human beings. And your mind can tell you one thing, your heart can tell you one thing, and then at the end of the day, you have your gut that's telling you this other thing. And my gut has yet to steer me wrong, and 
I think that's another good thing to tell my younger self. I, I, I'm sure you can relate, maybe. I don't know. What would you ask your younger self? Yeah, this question, it's so interesting. I think I would say three things, only three. First one, leave the present and enjoy it. Don't think about the future. Second one, it's everything is possible. You can do anything. And the third will be give up on being perfectionist, girl. Like, just give up. Yeah. Even like with what you're saying, with like how you were initially like maybe sometimes feeling insecure or something, anyone's younger self, but especially like someone Latinx's younger self could really benefit from like being proud of the skin you're in and the community you have and what you're born into and your ethnicity mm -hmm. and the culture that comes with that. I think that is another thing that I would have loved to have been able to tell my younger self because I sh that is a struggle that has taken... I didn't really become proud of myself until I was 20. So that was another... I guess call back to the Denmark question, like another revolutionary moment in that country. Now, I would like you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear these phrases. Your superpower. The fire in my heart. <laughs> the humankind. That is a challenging one. Yeah, I would say hope. Hope. I have hope. Your favorite artist. FKA Twigs. <laughs> She's a cool like experimental artist from um, the UK. And how about the queer Latinx community? Family, safe haven, uh, just a safe haven, to be honest. <laughs> Especially like individuals in like our age group that are more modern, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those, those are some instant thoughts. Yeah, for sure. Especially the younger generation, I definitely can see that. It's interesting because like, in America, like a lot of these queer Latinx spaces, they are very popular in like community gatherings, local clinics, local like book readings, even like queer bookstores. And that's like throughout America, you know, mm -hmm. but a lot of younger people, myself included, didn't really first enter these spaces until we started going out and going out into the nightlife because mm -hmm. there's different sides of this and you don't really get to do that in America until you're 21 legally. So it really takes a while for you to get into these spaces and to, at least in the US, to get into these spaces and to realize like how fucking cool they are, you know? Mm -hmm. To like meet people that grew up the same way you grew up and have the same conservative parents or the same religious parents. And then to just say, fuck it, like I'm just going to live my life honestly and earnestly. And that's what I'm going to do. And to be honest, like that's something that I have found since I've lived in San Francisco too. Mm -hmm. I first started finding like my queer Latinx community in, in college in Santa Barbara, but I have found it so much more in San Francisco and even in social media, like Twitter, Instagram, like you meet really cool people through that. And that has just been such a safe haven for me because I realize other people have had similar experiences like myself and we can talk about it and we can vent about it and realize that it's not on us. You know, like it's not because of us or we're doing anything wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just, you have to take a, you have to think big picture and realize like the scope and realize what your parents grew up in and realize like the different countries and different cultures and kind of let go of the anger 
that sometimes we have built up inside for so long because we grew resentful of society, we grew resentful of family and whatnot. So I think it could be very liberating. Oh, you said it beautifully. I'm thinking about Latin America, maybe only Brazil. I don't know much about the rest, but I believe they are similar. It takes a lot of time to find your community and feel accepted. And I think there are some places that are a little bit better than the others in this sense, which is San Francisco's case, that we have a lot of amazing people. I mean, you bring up an interesting point because, I mean, you obviously grew up in Brazil. For me as an outsider, I, like, I only see like sometimes pictures or videos of Brazil. And mm -hmm. these are from like queer people that I follow on like Instagram or Twitter. And to me, looking as an outsider, looking at these photos, it, it seems like a very open queer space to be in. Yeah. But I can't, obviously, I don't, I didn't live, I don't live in Brazil and I didn't grow up there. So I, like, is that the case? Like, is that, is there like a big queer community in Brazil or does it, is it like you find those pockets, but it's not necessarily like throughout the country? I know. So Brazil sells an image that is not true in a sense that the population is not open-minded. And I think one of the reasons why is because the country is super religious and it's getting more religious over the years. So it's definitely impacting that. And at the same time, we have a big LGBTQ community. I think the Pride Parade in Sao Paulo, it's one of the biggest in the world. I had the same mindset as you were saying, like as an outsider, I see it. It looks very like safe and looks very welcoming, but that's definitely not the case clearly. Yeah. And yeah, I love, I love that you mentioned that. Yeah, it's really challenging especially over the last years with the government we have in the power right now, things are getting worse and worse every day. And changing a little bit the mood of this podcast, talking a little bit more about the bright side of things. I would like to know what is helping you to cope during this pandemic situation. Is there anything you want to share with us today? I've never FaceTimed this many people, number one. <laughs> so it's been great to... Like, I am naturally an introvert, is what I've learned this year. Like, very, like, through outside help, I've realized that I am an introvert. So, it's very important for me to maintain connections, but not to be feel, not to feel overwhelmed by them. Mm -hmm. And I can get very, like, I'm very comfortable in quarantine because I'm very comfortable being by myself. So, I've had to make a conscious effort to FaceTime people, mm -hmm. check in with people, And that's been really helpful because it reminds me of the great network that I have. And also, like, to, you can meet new people, too, through social media. I've had FaceTimes with, like, people I've never even talked to in person before under quarantine. And it's been great. So reading, I would say making music. I've, I've started to kind of learn how to DJ, which is cool. Um, yeah. Doing math. I like to do math also, like for fun, because I'm fucking weird. A little bit weird. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm always trying to learn more. So right now I'm like learning more linear algebra because it's helpful. Um, But it's cool, and, though. <laughs> Thanks. Also, like, I am going to miss San Francisco, but San Francisco has so much good green space. Like, I've never lived in a city with so many parks, so much nature. So, 
that has really helped me so much. I live next to Golden Gate Park, so I go there all the time, like every week to like lay under a tree, read a book, maybe have a social distance hangout. It's, I think green space has been really the propelment for like what's helped me together mm -hmm. during mm -hmm. these very difficult times. Like the world has never been this introspective. Like we are stuck in our homes. We have to think about what we think of ourselves. So there's this like thing going on right now in America or a lot of parts of America where people are questioning their gender identity, you know? There's this really cool thing going on where that just goes to show that like gender is socially constructed because you have a lot of people in America realizing like, I don't really need to act this way, but mm -hmm. I am acting this way because of what society expects me to act as a man or as a female and because of the people they hang out with. So that's been really cool, I think, because mm -hmm. you have people coming out and realizing that they are trans or realizing that they're queer or just realizing that they don't like putting up a facade and that they would rather express themselves more authentically. And although it is difficult to undergo through that, I think it has also been a very good coping mechanism in under like under the pandemic because I think anytime someone can live their life more honestly, more truthfully, it becomes better. Living mm -hmm. life becomes better, becomes happier, becomes more full of life and you celebrate you celebrate life more. So that I think those have been the things that have been keeping me going. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing those important thoughts with us. I had a lot of fun. That was amazing. Thank you. I really appreciate Jacobo. Of course. Thank you for having me on, Thaisa. I've loved being here. I love talking to you. And it's just a great vibe to like have a little, little chat, especially under quarantine, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll have more interviews with amazing Latinx every first Tuesday of the month. Check our website, latinxempower.com, to hear more. Don't forget to share comments and feedback always with kindness. See you soon. Bye.